0: may be seated if your Bibles are open hey if you don't have a Bible again it's Luke chapter 20 but raise your hand we'll be glad to put one in your hand Luke chapter 20 if you need a Bible our guys are glad to drop one in your hand and if you don't know where Luke 20 is just look at the person next to you and see where they start turning and uh, or just tap them and say hey help me find Luke chapter 20 starting in verse 1 we'll be reading uh, 19 verses here Luke 1 verses 1 through 19 And verse 1, it says, Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it who gives you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question. Answer me, and uh, the baptism of John, Was it from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John is a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, Leased it to vine dressers and went to a far uh, country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant of the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again they sent another he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. Again he sent a third and they wounded him and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16 He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And he looked at them and said, what is then this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but in him who it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priest, the scribes, that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they did not know he had spoken this parable against him. For they knew, I'm sorry, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask again for the ministry of your Spirit through your Word, that our hearts would be soft, our eyes would be open, and our spiritual ears would be attentive. And we ask this in your name. Amen. The clearing of the temple, no doubt, was the talk of Jerusalem. If you are here with us last week, you know, Jesus, for the second time in his ministry, he had done it the first, in the first part of his ministry, early in the three-year part of his ministry, he had taken a whip and he had driven the money changers out of the temple. And then he does it a second time, this is the final week before he goes to the cross, this is what's referred to as Passover week. Uh, you sometimes hear it return to as Passion Week, but the Passover week is really what it was from a biblical calendar standpoint this was the week of Passover and for the second time in his ministry he cleared the temple and he flips the tables and turns the money over and drives every single one of the money changers out and then he wouldn't even let them back into the temple and you saw the photos I showed how massive and expansive the temple was but Jesus exuded this authority and everyone really was in awe of what they had seen. No doubt this was the talk of Jerusalem. Nothing, it was nothing short of jaw-dropping for anyone uh, who had witnessed him overturning these tables and driving out the money changers. Yet what had grabbed everyone's attention only further incensed the religious leaders. Now they were paying attention, but they were now even more angry than they already were. And furthermore, Jesus had called them, if you recall, in chapter 19. He had called them thieves. He said, you've made the temple a den of thieves. And they thought of themselves as the pure and undefiled keepers of law. And that's the way everyone saw them, but Jesus had exposed them for what they were. And the stage was now set for the, his examination as the Passover lamb. Uh, it's during the Passover season. I referenced this briefly, but let me give you a little more detail on it. During the Passover season, the Jews would have to carefully inspect the Passover lamb. Remember, going all the way back to the Exodus, each family was to sacrifice a Passover lamb that was, that was enough to satisfy their family, and then if they had a larger lamb, it could even include an extended family. But they had to sacrifice this lamb, but they would carefully inspect the lamb for blemishes and spots from the 10th day to the 14th day. Every year, had to inspect it during that time period and ensure that the lambs were completely flawless, spotless, and without blemish. Unwittingly, because God uses people who don't know they're being used for His ultimate purposes. Unwittingly, the religious leaders who despise Jesus will actually carry out the examination and inspection process of Him as the Lamb of God. So he too will be inspected in the same way that lambs are during those same four days. They're happening in perfect synchronicity. Those two four days, side by side, lambs are being inspected, and Jesus is being inspected. Now, as I mentioned last week, Jesus, throughout his ministry, he's been examining those that are his examiners. Throughout his ministry, he always has people questioning him, coming to him. He's always examining them. And what begins here is this post temple cleansing amounts to a cross examination. They're going to question him. Jesus is going to cross examine them. And he's ultimately going to expose them and leave them speechless. And this is what Jesus does. You know, we can come to him and we have a lot to say sometimes, but he can actually bring us to a place of silencing us. That all the world be stopped. All the mouths of the world be stopped. Because the law of God does that, and Jesus is the law in their very midst. The law that they claim to love, He is the fulfillment of the law. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Cornered by the Cornerstone. Cornered by the Cornerstone. He references Himself, and we'll get to that a little later, as the Cornerstone, the chief cornerstone and we'll look at two primary themes from our text this morning two primary themes a question of authority and a matter of acceptance a question of authority and a matter of acceptance the chief priest and the scribes they were confident of their own authority where they received it they they believed you know if you have a certain position at your job, you don't want, want run around doubting, I wonder if I'm allowed to ask so and so to do such and so. Now if you have a certain amount of authority, you feel confident, hey, I need you to run out and pick up these supplies. Because you're confident in the authority you've been given. They were confident in the authority that they had. The chief priest were the Levites according to the law, they had been given uh, under the law of Moses, the right to administer the temple ordinances and to lead the worship and to lead the sacrifices in the temple. That was given only to the Levites. And so these uh, priests, they had that uh, God given authority and responsibility. Now, the scribes, you'll, you'll hear this term, uh, the scribes as well, they were the experts in the law. They studied the law constantly. And there was in, in Jerusalem and other parts of the Mediterranean world where you had Jewish synagogues, they had, uh, each of these had rabbis that would interpret the law, and you would actually kind of latch yourself into, I'm a disciple of rabbi so-and-so, Well, I'm a disciple of rabbi so-and-so in the different schools. Paul said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So you had these different uh, schools of rabbinical study, and they had given, been given their authority by the rabbis. To do what? To teach the law and to explain it to the rest of the people, the common people. And these men, they were leaders in Israel. They had recognized authority, but they didn't see Jesus as possessing authority. Much less any authority to clear out the temple, and then not only clear it out, but you see what Jesus is doing, he's standing there teaching in the temple. This really was like nails on a chalkboard for them. Not only did he drive everybody out, but he's now standing there teaching in the temple. And so they had a question they wanted to ask him. And they wanted to ask it in the presence of his audience, intended to prove that he had no authority to do what he was doing. That was their goal. If we ask him publicly, we can expose him as being fraudulent. But their question lacked sincerity. The reality is, they don't care where his authority comes from. They're not going to listen to it either way. You ever been asked insincere questions by people? You wonder, why are you even asking this? Do you really want my opinion? Do you really care about my opinion? Lacks sincerity, they don't care. You know, uh, the author of Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger, he once said, I am always saying glad to have met you, to somebody I'm not at all glad to meet. (laughs) If you want to stay alive, you have to say stuff like that. (laughs) We we can relate to that, can't we? These religious leaders, their lives were lived in insincerity. They They were always seeking their own power or their own gratification. And Christians... Even after you've come to know the Lord, when you think about insincerity, uh, we have in our flesh self-preservation, self-interest, and insincerity in our own flesh. Would you agree? We, We have that naturally in us. That's the sin nature that's in us. But I tell you what, the more we love Jesus and the more we love other people, the less will struggle with insincerity. The more we love Jesus, and the more we love other people, the less we will struggle with insincerity. You will more and more be able to say to even people that you don't click with, my spirit loves that person. And you find yourself speaking more sincerely. Your yes will mean yes, your no will mean no. We can even love our enemies and speak with sincerity and without any agenda the more the Holy Spirit is in control of our life. Isn't it refreshing when you meet people who don't have an agenda? Now, you'll know when people have an agenda, usually, unless you're just uh, born yesterday. You'll usually know when people have an agenda. But it's really, really refreshing when you meet someone who truly has no agenda. They'll just be sincere and gracious. This is the way the Lord wants us to be. The Pharisees didn't, uh, the uh, scribes and the chief priests, this was not their life. They had an agenda. Now, before we look at how Jesus responds to their question, they've asked him a question, insincere it may be, a set up question, if you will. Before we look at his response to the question, let's look briefly how Jesus is using his authority. So he has authority. Let's look at how, for just a minute, how he's using that authority. What was Jesus doing with his authority? Number one, he's teaching the people. He's teaching the people. He's being the example of righteousness. There's three things I want to point out to you here. He's being the example of righteousness. You know, you and I, we want to live righteous, but never in this lifetime even to the kingdom of God, we will never be the example of righteousness. That's Christ alone. He is the example of righteousness. Emmanuel, God in the flesh, in their presence. He's teaching the people about God in the Scriptures. Now no one can teach more about God than Jesus because not only did He come from God, but He's actually God with us. So He's teaching people about God. Remember the scribes? They would teach about the law, and they would teach about the scriptures, but their knowledge was limited. I can teach you about the scriptures, but my knowledge is limited. Jesus could step up on the stage here and say, Tim missed the first thousand things here, let's go through it. Because he has no limit to what he can explain and address. So he's teaching the people about God and the scriptures, but he's also building up, encouraging, instructing. His disciples are there too. In the midst will be false disciples that will actually yell, crucify but they'll also be his genuine disciples, and they're being built up and encouraged. Might be people here today that, you know, you don't really yet believe in Christ. Maybe we got other people that do, but those that do, you find uh, sitting on the Word of God encouraging. You're built up, you're strengthened. Other people, well, one of the reasons they don't go to church is they don't find that to be building them up, strengthening them, encouraging them. God wants each and every person to come to the place of not only hearing from the Lord, but actually it being fresh water, refreshing. And Jesus was encouraging and strengthening His own disciples. What the other thing He was doing, it says He was preaching the Gospel. So it says in verse 1, He taught the people and He preached the Gospel. And there's a difference between teaching and preaching. Uh, there is times, Wednesday nights, if you come this Wednesday night, Fascinating study. matter of fact, one of the more fascinating passages in all of Scripture I'll be covering this Wednesday night with the East Gate and uh, the Prince that enters the East Gate and the Millennium Temple. Wednesday nights, if you come, Wednesday nights is more about teaching. Sunday morning I do a fair amount of teaching, but there's also more preaching. And so you kind of have a crossover with the two. Uh, I consider myself part preacher and part teacher, and then other people are really more just teachers that I used to sit under a pastor who was like 90 percent preacher. He would fire you up every single Sunday. He was awesome, but less of a teacher and more of a preacher. And Jesus, I believe, always was doing a bit of both: teaching and preaching. And whether you're saved or unsaved, we still need preaching. But under the preaching of the gospel, because that's what it specifically says here, it said he preached the gospel. What does that look like? Well those three things, under preaching the gospel he was explaining the incurable nature of sin. See sin is a, you may not have an incurable disease that you know of physically, but all of us have the incurable nature of sin. We all sin. Even this morning probably somewhere along the way we've done something that's against the nature of God even when we don't know it. That's why we're always praying as the Lord asked us to pray. Forgive us our sins and trespasses. The incurable nature of sin. He's proclaiming the need of salvation through Christ. Remember, people would say to Jesus, what what do I need to do to be saved? Saved from what? Well, saved from the judgment to come of hell. There really is a heaven, there really is a hell. Both those places do exist. And the third, declaring the hope of eternal life in Christ. So the incurable nature of sin, the need for salvation through Christ, and declaring the eternal hope that's in Jesus alone, Yeshua. As He's standing there in the temple, those people needed Christ just like we need Christ, but He's explaining to them, this is your need, teaching and preaching. Now, we too have been given a measure of authority. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, I love this verse. That the Lord promises us that we would be given power. You want more power in your life? I mean, not not power like physical strength and not power to be impressive to people, but that power that's from the Holy Spirit that you're able to plow through difficulties in life. You're able to really see things as God sees them. You're able to be bold when you need to be bold. You're able to love people when they're unlovable. And even when they're opposing you, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the way we see Jesus live. When you read the Gospels, I've listened to people's testimonies that just read the Gospels and they got saved because they could see in the life of Christ power. And He wants to give us that same power. We've been given a measure of authority to be Christ's witnesses in this world. By the way, without His help, we can never be a good witness. I was reading... uh, um, Martin Luther, he said, God keeps us from sinning too greatly. If you're saved, he absolutely keeps us from sinning too greatly. It's interesting that uh, he doesn't make us sinless and perfect until we get to heaven, but if you really are saved, he keeps us from sinning too greatly, but he also gives us power to actually touch and minister in people's lives. And we've been given his word we've given His Holy Spirit, we've given His words, we know what to say so we don't have to make stuff up or give our opinion. Say, here's what the Scriptures say. Here's what the Scriptures say. I love when, I'm, when someone really is open, I can say, here's what it says. I just show them. I remember one night when we were, when we were at Air, we could not get through to one of these kids. But little by little, we just kept showing a verse and you could see how the Word of God broke a person down on the inside. This is what it says. And we have this Holy Spirit to actually help us do these things. Because without the Holy Spirit's help, we would give up by Wednesday. We would. We'd just throw in the towel. Because it's too hard to live for Christ. But the Holy Spirit allows us to actually do it. That's the power that we receive. But what, would, what should we be doing as Christians with our authority? We've been given some measure of authority. This isn't to go boss people around. This is the authority to actually present Christ to the rest of the world. We don't have to ask permission. Jesus, is it okay if I invite my neighbor to church? Is it alright if I tell my coworker, hey, do you mind if I pray for you on that? No. You have the freedom and actually the authority given to do these things. What should we be doing with our own given authority? Teaching people through our lives. Jesus was teaching in the temple. We're not supposed to You know, go stand in the temple, and of course there is no temple today to stand in and preach. But we are supposed to be teaching through our lives. Our bodies are the temple of God. So we have a temple that we live within, that we reside, and we're to use our lives to be examples of righteousness by grace. You know, explaining to people, look, you know, uh, I just have been changed by the Lord. Teaching about God and His grace in our actions and our words in daily life. Do our words, if people around you hear you speak, could they actually come to the conclusion that God's done a life-changing work in your life? Like what you say, what comes out of your mouth. We were talking on Thursday night. We had an awesome men's study Thursday night. And I was explaining to the guys, one thing that God has just, I mean, has impressed upon me so much in the last year is everywhere I go, as much as I can to build up and encourage people and find, even if they're unsaved and you say, wow, it's hard to find a redeeming value in anything this person is saying, but you find something to encourage them in and I tell you what, it opens the door to really expressing the gospel and their truest need. Because people are always putting up you know, walls and trying to uh, really impress you and trying to uh, in some way show what they are, even if it's not what they are. God wants us to, in our lives, be seasoned our words with grace, our actions and our attitudes, building up and encouraging people. Now, this doesn't mean you're building up and encouraging sin, but again, you know, if I, I just use simple things. You know, If I say to my neighbor, man, I love what you've done with the hedges. I've loved what you've done with your flower beds. You would be surprised how their disposition changes when you regularly give people compliments and encourage them, and then you open the door, and when you invite them to church or something like that, or you say, hey, uh, you should read in Matthew's Gospel, something like that, you'll get a little better audience than just kind of keeping to yourself and never saying a word to anybody. And then when you finally do speak, you want to speak about the Lord? Because you've got to love people first. They have to see that you actually care. We've been, Jesus has been caring for people for three full years. He's been feeding them when they come. He's been loving on them. He's been saying, I'll heal your sick. I'll heal the blind. He certainly has been showing them a lot of love, but he's going to also tell them, you know, real genuine love also warns of what's coming. There's also the need for the gospel. We're to be preaching the gospel as we go. We need to preach the gospel as we go. We're explaining the incurable nature of sin through our own personal dilemma. We have our own personal dilemma. And what we tell people is our testimony. That's our life. Explaining the nature of sin and what God's done for us. We're sharing the need for salvation and forgiveness through Christ and Christ alone. Letting people know that, hey, there wasn't another way. You know, when I got saved and 1995, my wife got saved on the same day. There wasn't another way for us to come to Christ. It was only through salvation through Christ and Christ alone. And we have to let people know that. That we're not saved because we go to church. A lot of people go to church. I'm going to be doing in in my what, why, and I added one other What, why, and how series. The first one I'm doing in a couple of weeks. I haven't picked the date, but it's going to be in a few weeks. What is salvation? Because there's some real misnomers about what salvation is. And we'll look at it from the Scriptures. What is salvation? And it's not church attendance. That's not it. It's not that you're a Protestant. It's not. Not that you're a Lutheran or a Baptist or a Calvary Chapel person or anything. Or you can speak in tongues or someone else can't. That none of that is the definition of what salvation is. But we explain that it's through forgiveness through Christ and Christ alone. And then the third is the good news of eternal life. Do I dare try this again? Yeah, very good, nice. God working on behalf of the slides. (laughs) When we are doing what we're called to do, when we're doing what we're called to do, we're going to be a light, we're going to be an example, we're going to see lives touched. When we're doing what we're called to do. Jesus did what he was called to do, didn't he? He's our example. He didn't run from his calling. He actually let his light shine among men. And that's what he's called us to do. This was not what the scribes and Pharisees, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, they were not doing that. They were not letting God flow through their lives. They were actually restraining the light of God, actually hiding it. They wanted to put the light of God out because Jesus was the light of God. They wanted to cover it up, silence it, quiet it. And by the way, the enemy wants your light to be completely put out. Even if you're saved, he wants you to never say a word about it. Keep it, just keep it to yourself. Now, there will be times that we encounter opposition. Jesus encountered opposition, so know that it won't always be smooth sailing the time that you say to somebody, You know, I want to tell you about what God did for me. There will be times, I've had many of them in my life where people say, I don't really want to hear what God did for you. I'm not interested. I've had people tell me flat out, I'm not interested. Keep it to yourself. I've had some rude answers, I've had some very nice answers, but still with the same intent. So understand that when we do what we're called to do, it won't always go smoothly. It certainly didn't for Jesus. But let's get back to the question of His authority. and His response to that question he responds with a question of his own. What about John? Now, I've confessed before my favorite movie is What About Bob with uh, Richard Dreyfus and Bill Murray. <laughs> I'm kind of partial to Bill Murray movies anyway. Um, that's not a spiritual statement in any way, shape, or form. I get it. Um, And by the way, now when I watch What About Bob, I have to mute the Guffmans, and I have to mute when Bill Murray has a Tourette's Syndrome incident. Uh, Those two things. But other than that, it's a clean, you know, so just letting you know. Uh, But I've confessed before, that's my favorite movie. When I need to laugh, I just can mute that. Those two, hilarious to me. But I think, speaking of another Bill Murray movie, Jesus dealing with the religious leaders was like Groundhog Day. (laughs) Every single time he runs into these guys it's always the same thing we'll try and trap him and he they can't trap him let's try it again let's try this angle let's put it this way this way will surely trip him up but it never works and they ask him this question where is your authority and who given you who you know where does this authority come from who's given you this authority but he responds back, you know, Jesus, we can learn so much from his approach, he responds with a question of his own. You know, at times, especially if you've been given the authority as parents, when your kids ask you a question, you can respond with a question. Say, I'm glad you asked, I've got one for you too, right? Why are you always <laughs> fill in the blank? Jesus has a question for them and he says the baptism of John is it from heaven or is it from men what a loaded question is it from heaven or is it from men now you and I would have no problem maybe answering that question but they had a big problem answering it because they felt like they were between a rock and a hard place and they were Jesus, with more than a genius IQ, he knows everything, knows that this question goes to the heart of where they're really at. How are they are going to answer it? It says in the text, they reason among themselves. If we say from heaven, he's going to ask, why didn't you believe him? That's a valid point. We know it's from God, but we rejected it anyway. But if we say it's from men, we're going to get stoned today. Because right now the people are really rallying. Remember, they had just put the palm branches down as he drove people out of the temple. They kind wow. wow. These guys at this point say he's a fraud and they're in a bad place. So they come up with what they think is a really clever answer. We don't know. Wasn't well, that a great answer for a lot of us in life? I have no idea. But here they're insincere. Because they do think, or they have an answer, but they, to say we don't know, they already don't think he's, they don't think it's from heaven, by their own admission. And so he says, "Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things." At the baptism of John, they had seen John. You know, John. Uh, Jesus says that John is the one spoken of in the book of Malachi, who's preparing the way of the Lord. John came he was the spirit of Elijah according to Jesus. As a matter of fact, the scribes and the the rabbis, they believed that when Elijah came, they actually literally believed in the interpretation that when it says when Elijah will come in Malachi, that they believed Elijah would actually come back and would explain to them passages they didn't understand, such as Ezekiel's chapter 40, 41, 42, 43, 44 that we've been looking at on Wednesday nights. They didn't understand why even the temple uh, wouldn't have some of the elements that were found in the tabernacle, the, the Millennium Temple, wouldn't have elements like the Ark of the Covenant in it. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night. They thought when Elijah come, he would explain these things. But actually it was the spirit of Elijah that God was speaking about, and that was John the Baptist, and he wasn't there to explain all their questions. He was there to point them to, behold the Lamb of God. That was John's job. And so John was given that job. John did it well. He even was called to baptize Jesus, which was symbolic. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the remission of sins or anything. But he did it as an example that we would someday, our lives would be buried with his and risen up with his resurrection. And so the baptism of John was given by God to John the Baptist as a witness to God. Remember, the Holy Spirit comes down upon John, a witness that Jesus was sent from God, but also it would play a role. And even today, when we, after we get saved, are baptized, we're following in the footsteps of Christ. But they rejected all of that. They didn't believe that that came from heaven. John did miracles too. He did amazing things, and he spoke with great authority. The people believed he was a prophet, and he certainly was, but they didn't believe it. And so then he goes into this parable, he, from here, he begins to tell this parable of, of the vine dressers, the wicked vine dressers. And this is a matter of acceptance, he begins to speak of, because whatever Jesus says, we can either accept it or reject it. True? Everything. Matter of fact, and this is really genuinely true, I mean, you, if you watch any of these political debates, you can either accept what they're saying you can reject what they're saying. A lot of it I'm rejecting. Some of it I'm accepting, if it's really sincere. Sometimes they are. But a matter of acceptance, when it comes to Jesus, has eternal consequences. That's why we say we've accepted the Lord as our personal Savior. Right? We use that term, have you accepted Christ? Or what's the opposite? Have you rejected Christ? It comes down to a matter of acceptance. And so Jesus begins to tell this parable of the vineyard. These vine dressers. Interesting, what he describes here. I want to enumerate them for you, so you can see for yourself. Eight things he references. Eight things he references in this parable, and each one of them is dis- is distinctly there uh, to show us something and help us understand what takes place in the sphere of time and what we're going to do or not do with Jesus Christ. Eight things he points out here. Every parable Jesus ever tells, if you want to study them, even the little details have really, really big implications. Every parable he tells. You know, you and I, we tell illustrative stories all the time to make points, maybe in your job, maybe sometimes to make a point to your children, and we tell, it's kind of like, and we use a little a mini parable in a while. Jesus would do this on a regular basis. This parable of the vineyard. First thing is the owner. Who is the owner? The owner is God the Father. God the Father is the owner. He owns the whole vineyard. The vineyard there is a picture of the world, but it's also more specifically in this case, uh, understand the principle duality, things in the Scriptures mean more than one thing at the exact same time. Jesus was this way in his own nature. He was the way, the truth, and the life all at the same time. He was the Father, but he was also the Son. Right? You say, Jesus, are you the Father or you the Son? Yes. Right? So in the principle duality, things mean, in Scripture, they mean multiple things, and they're simultaneously true. It's not either or, it's both and. And sometimes it's both and plus. That's why the more you study the Scriptures, you won't be confused by what some people will call contradictions. They're not. They don't really understand the Scriptures. When you see the Scriptures in... in they're full, the, the full counsel of God, they give us the full picture. And so the vineyard here, on the one hand, it typifies the whole world. We're all in this vineyard. But in a very specific sense, the vineyard was given to the spiritual leadership of Israel, the temple and the guarding of the law and the scriptures. They were to tend that vineyard faithfully, and it was to bear what? Fruit. The fruit of lives being changed. So the vineyard was given to the temple priest, the priesthood, the Levites. They were in charge of the vineyard, and it should produce good fruit. If it produced bad fruit, that would be a problem. But it's also a picture of the world. Vineyard owner being God. The lease, and Jesus says, it said uh, that he leased it to vine dressers. What is the lease in time? The lease also indicates time. Any of you have ever signed a lease? You know a lease has a time spent. It might be a three-year lease. It might be if you lease a car, a four-year lease, whatever it may be. Lease has a definitive amount of time. Guess what? We, in our lives, have been given a lease on the breath that is in our lungs. We have a limited, definitive amount of time. It's that little dash between our birth date and our death date. None of us own time. We've been given a little lease of time. So, the vineyard, it says that uh, it's been leased for a time. We've all been given a specified time on this earth. God owns the earth. We simply are renting our time, if you will. We have a little bit of time to use, and uh, God owns everything. He's the one that sets the least terms of our life. Then we have the vine dressers. The vine dressers. Well, they weren't intended to be wicked, the vine dressers were supposed to be taking good care of God's creation. And in this more micro, that's the macro is the earth, that you, know, you and I should be good stewards of anything God puts in our hand. But the priest, and the scribes, they were to be good stewards of what? The law of Moses? They were to be teaching people that Jesus was coming. They were to be teaching people like John did. They should have been doing what John did. Behold the Lamb of God. That would be properly tending the vineyards. that makes sense? That was their job. Their job was to point people to God. They were actually saying, don't believe John, follow us. So they were opposed to the very vineyard owner. That would be like saying the vineyard owner says, I'm growing these kind of grapes. They say, we're not growing those kind of grapes. We're growing these kind of grapes. Thank you very much. We're in charge. That's what they were doing. So they were taking the rule book that he'd given and said, we don't like that idea. We'll do it our own way. They're the vine dressers. They were given this specific responsibility. But again, it also applies to all humans. In a macro sense, it's everyone. We've all been given a time on this earth to either accept or believe what God's given in his word. Now, the fourth is the sent servants. The sent servants, who are they? Well, they're the Old Testament prophets all the way up to John the Baptist himself. Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Moses. Now, we know... Uh, Isaiah, he was, it's, it's, we believe Isaiah was sawn in two. I mean, you'd say, wow, you wrote the book of Isaiah. We should actually treasure your words. No, they killed him. Many of the prophets were hated. Jeremiah was put in a dungeon. He actually had, was put into a pit of human waste. This is the way they treated the prophets that actually came and tried to warn them of sin and turn from sin and turn from judgment, but they did They they mistreated the prophets. And then when John the Baptist comes along, he ends up beheaded, right? So none of the prophets were well-received. They're the prophets of God, and they're the sent servants. And then five, we see their response to the servants. is what I just referenced. They would kick them out. They'd reject them. They'd silence them. Anything to not listen at all to these sent servants. Then we have the sixth is the sent son. This is the son of the vineyard. The vineyard owner is who? God the Father. The Son is his sent Son, Jesus Christ. So he says in the text, and Jesus is speaking the parable, he says, probably they'll respect him. Surely they'll respect if I send my only begotten Son to the vineyard. And he says to the vineyard, owner, hey, I think there's been some misunderstanding. You guys have been kicking out every servant I send. Will you listen to me? What will be their response? Well, it's every detail. Every detail matters. Look at what Jesus says. They say this is the heir. You know what that tells me? Jesus is giving us a deep insight here. They know Jesus is the Son of God. This is the heir. You will never be able to stand before God Judgment Day and say, "I just didn't know you were real." I just did I was looking at a poll, uh, a Barnett poll. As a tw- between 22 and 26% of people in England don't even believe Jesus existed. They believe he was like a mythical character or something like that. Now that's what they say with their mouth, but God says deep in your heart, you know I exist. Romans chapter 1 it says that. It says that men are without excuse because they see the evidence of God even in creation. And it's so Jesus saying, they know he's the heir, And they say, but if we kill him, we actually trump his authority. Well, this is the grand illusion, isn't it? If we kill him, even though we know he is the heir, we actually take over that authority. Now, that might work on a human sense, but it just doesn't work when you're dealing with God, does it? Then we have the response to the son there's a response, let's end his life. Let's take the authority. And then the eighth, there's one last response. What's that? The vineyard owner has the last word. Isn't it true? The vineyard owner still hasn't, he hasn't come personally to speak the last word, and he has a response to the killing of their sons, and here's what Jesus says. Verse 16, he will come and destroy those vineyard dresser, wicked vine dressers he will destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others now, who would be the others in the micro memory the macro sense you have the uh, the macro sense and the micro sense in the macro sense all people that reject Christ any inheritance that God would have given them in heaven they will not receive but those that receive Christ will so very clear, sheep, goats, wheat tares, that's clear. But what he's talking about specifically here is that the religious leaders, they were given the law and the prophets. They were Jewish by birth. They were blood seed of Abraham, but they were meant to be spiritual seed of Abraham, but they rejected their own spiritual birthright. And God says, believe it or not, your position as representing me will be given even to Gentiles. And they'll receive it and that they will then tend the vineyard. So then you have gentile pastors like me that are responsible for the care and feeding of God's sheep. I'm not a Levitical priest because the vine the vineyard was also given now the vineyard is tended by messianic Jewish pastors like one of my mentors Sam Nadler and others. So this is not a Jew gentile thing. I'm saying for them they were infuriated by the connotation that hold on a second, are you saying that our responsibility will be taken from us? Worse than that, you'll lose your eternal soul over this. Because he goes on to talk about not only would they lose their responsibility, but their rejection has other eternal implications as well. The religious leader's response is telling, look at what they say, certainly not. They're like, we will fight you and God right now. It's not real smart to fight against God. But they're like, they're saying, bring it on. Bring it on. You will not take away our authority. We'll take away your authority. And in a few days, they're going to do it. They're going to crucify him, and they're going to think they won. Right? They're going to think they won. The German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. He was an atheist and philosopher in the mid-1800s. A poster read, God is dead, hyphen, Nietzsche. Someone put with graffiti underneath it, Nietzsche is dead, hyphen, God. (laughs) True, huh? He only lived to be 55 years of age. He had a lot to say while he was alive about disproving God and Christianity was a joke and all the kind of things that he would say. Now, we would hope and pray that even... He came to his senses on his deathbed and somehow had a last breath, but the point is he could say all he wanted, but his hyphen, his lease on time is still his lease on time. God has the final word, doesn't he? He always has the final word. And look at what Jesus says in verse 17 here. He goes and says, what then is this that is written? He's like, you guys know the scriptures. Hey, big shots. You knowers of the law. You have massive portions of the, the Tanakh memorized. Tell me, explain to me Psalm one eighteen twenty two, Because that's what he's quoting from here. What does it mean the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? What does it mean? If you've rejected it, what does it mean? And he goes on to explain what it means in verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. On him it falls will be ground into powder. This, had, this verse had a tremendous impact on my life after I got saved. I got saved in a message on a Sunday morning, just like this morning, and I'll never forget when the pastor said, read from uh, the book of Revelation where Jesus said, I will vomit you out of, your, out of my mouth. That hit me like a ton of bricks. That's not the most flowery image coming from Jesus. But he was saying that if you're not going to follow me someday, he said, I'll vomit you out of my mouth, that you will not be in the kingdom of God. Well, here Jesus would make a similar, very, very definitive and harsh statement. He's like, if you fall on this rock, you'll be broken. Do You remember when you got saved, how broken you were over your sin? I had tears running down my face. There was a brokenness at our heart level, a contrite spirit that said, Lord, I'm sorry. So he said, if you fall on this rock, this big piece of you know, solid rock, it's going to break you up, but it's going to break you in a good way because God will mend you back together in his image. But he said if you resist, someday that rock will fall on you and it will ground us to powder. That's what he, the point he makes here, whoever it falls on. It's both a recommendation and a warning. What's the recommendation? Fall on the rock while you can come and receive mercy. The mercy seat was in the temple. Come and receive grace. No one, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But at the same time, it's a warning that some won't come to repentance, and if their very soul is in jeopardy, come to him while you can. See, Jesus, he's either a cornerstone He's either a cornerstone, or he's going to be the capstone in the temple. Um, matter of fact, we, I took the picture on the left. I took when we were in Israel, uh, when we went under the city walls of Jerusalem, and on the I would I'd say the north, the north um, west side, where the stones, these massive, massive stones were laid, and you get to the far northwest corner, and what that picture there, that part of the wall is not actually laid stone. That part of the corner is the mountain itself. The corner is actually the mountain. And see, Jesus in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel's told of the fact that um, one who's a mountain or a piece of stone made without hands will come and crush all the kingdoms of the world. Did you know that that day will come where Jesus will crush all the kingdoms of the world? But he also will fall upon each individual soul that says, I'm not interested, I don't want it, I'm going to run the vineyard my own way. He's either the cornerstone, the rock of our life. We sing that song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. He's either the rock of our life, or he'll be the rock that will fall upon us on the day of judgment. Now, This isn't a fun thing to teach if you're a pastor, but this is what Jesus said, and we're going to say exactly what he said, amen? This is what he said. These are words of eternal life. These are words that set people free. There's an inscription, I'm going to close with this. There's an inscription found in the Lubick Cathedral in Germany. You may have heard this before, but if you go there, you can read it yourself. It says this, it's been there for quite some time. It says, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and seek me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. And that is true of so many. Oh, yeah, I I believe Jesus is a good guy. I believe he's this. I believe he's that. But if I tell you, no, he says he's the chief cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected, it's going to be the rock of offense. If I tell you that if you fall on him, you'll be saved. But if he falls on you, it's too late. That's what he's saying. You can say all these flowery things, but he said, have you ever given your heart and life to me? And so he's confronted them. They're cornered by their own words. What will they do with it? What will we do with it? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we bow before you. We recognize that you have come in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. That you gave your life a ransom for our sins. Lord, you didn't have to leave the throne of heaven. You could have let us all fall into the abyss that we so richly deserved. But you came as a spotless lamb. The very lamb that was being examined that final week before the crucifixion. And you came, Lord. Even some of these leaders would later come to their senses and fall upon the rock. And Lord, it's my prayer if there's anyone here this morning that they've never fallen upon the rock and given their heart and life to you, that even today they would do so. Lord, the wisest thing we could ever do is to say, we're sorry. Have mercy upon me, Jesus. And Lord, you're willing to adopt us as your sons and daughters, as you've done for so many in this room, and we're thankful for it. And as we come to a close, before we close and worship, I just want to give the opportunity. I mean, I mentioned in '95, <laughs> that morning that I gave my life to Christ, I had no idea what was going to be preached that morning. And um, I'll never forget, I felt like an arrow went through my heart when he said the words of Jesus, I'll even read it for you. It's in the book of Revelation. Jesus has a letter to the seven churches there. And when he says in his own words, he did not hear it directly from me. Um, he said, I wish you were hot or cold, but that you're lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And isn't that the state of much of the church? Now, Jesus can say that to a saved person, and they'll kind of say, Lord, I need to get my act together. I need to rededicate my life. But he was speaking to me as a person who would never fallen on the rock in the first place. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and uh, that morning I turned to my wife and I said, I'm going forward. And she said, I am too. And we've never looked back. We have never looked back. We've fallen a lot of times and skinned our knees and bloodied our lips spiritually and stuff like that, but we never went back to where we came from. And I know that when I stand for Jesus, he won't say, I condemn you. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not perfect servant, but how about you? Have you fallen on the rock? This is what Jesus is, is saying, the stone which the builders rejected. Did you reject the stone or have you said yes? Yes. I want you to be my cornerstone. And so as our heads are bowed for just a moment, I just want to ask if there's anyone that wants to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ, just stand right where you're at. We want to pray with you. We've had people do it here and their lives have been transformed. Just stand right where you're at. Don't worry about what other people think. You won't stand before them at the end of the age. You'll stand before the chief cornerstone. And I'm asking you this in love. God loves you so much. That he came to die. Jesus didn't do anything insincere. You know that he's speaking to these men. He doesn't want to fall upon them, he wants to save them. But they have to make that decision. It is a personal decision. Just stand right where you're at. Don't worry about what people think. I'm going to let the worship team play for just a second. We'll give an opportunity you want to stand, come and stand at the altar here. We'll, we'll pray with you here.